Section thirteen of Roxana by Daniel Defoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. We were near two years upon this grand tour, as it may be called, during most of which I resided at Rome or at Venice, having only been twice at Florence and once at Naples. I made some very diverting and useful observations in all these places, and particularly of the conduct of the ladies, for I had opportunity to converse much among them, and by the help of the old witch that travelled with us. She had been at Naples and at Venice, and had lived in the former several years, where, as I found, she had lived but a loose life, and indeed the women of Naples generally do. In short, I found she was fully acquainted with all the intriguing arts of that part of the world. Here my lord bought me a little female Turkish slave, who, being taken at sea by a Maltese man of war, was brought in there, and of her I learned the Turkish language, the way of dressing and dancing, and some Turkish or rather Moorish songs, which I made use to my advantage on an extraordinary occasion some years after, as you shall hear in its place. I need not say I learnt Italian too, for I got pretty well mistress of that before I had been there a year, and as I had leisure enough and loved the language, I read all the Italian books I could come at. I began to be so in love with Italy, especially with Naples and Venice, that I could have been very well satisfied to have sent for Amy have taken up my residence there for life. As to Rome, I did not like it at all. The swarms of ecclesiastics of all kinds on one side, and the scoundrel rabbles of the common people on the other, make Rome the unpleasant place in the world to live in. The innumerable number of valets, lackeys, and other servants is such that they used to say that there are very few of the common people in Rome, but what have been footmen or porters or grooms to cardinals or foreign ambassadors. In a word, they have an air of sharping and cozening, quarrelling and scolding upon their general behaviour. And when I was there, the footmen made such a broil between two great families in Rome, about which of their coaches, the ladies being in the coaches on either side, should give way to the other there was about thirty people wounded on both sides, five or six killed outside, and both the ladies frightened almost to death. But I have no mind to write the history of my travels on this side of the world, and at least not now. It would be too full of variety. I must not, however, omit that the prince continued in all this journey the most kind obliging person to me in the world, and so constant that though we were in a country where it is well known all manner of liberties are taken, I am yet well assured he took neither the liberty he knew he might have, or so much as desired. I have often thought of this noble person on that account. Had he been but half so true, so faithful and constant to the best lady in the world, I mean his princess. How glorious a virtue had it been in him! How free had he been from those just reflections which touched him in her behalf when it was 
too late. We had some very agreeable conversations upon this subject, and once he told me, with a kind of more than ordinary concern upon his thoughts, that he was greatly beholden to me for taking this hazardous and difficult journey, for that I had kept him honest. I looked up in his face, and coloured as red as fire. Well, well, says he, do not let that surprise you, but you say you have kept me honest. My lord, said I, it is not for me to explain your words, but I wish I could turn them my own way. I hope, says I, and believe we are both as honest as we can be in our circumstances. Ay, ay, says he, and honester than I doubt I should have been if you had not been with me. I cannot say but, if you had not been here, I should have wandered among the gay world here in Naples and in Venice too, for tis not such a crime here as tis in other places. But I protest, says he, I have not touched a woman in Italy but yourself, and more than that, I have not so much as had any desire to it. So that, I say, you have kept me honest. I was silent, and was glad that he interrupted me, or kept me from speaking with kissing me, for really I knew not what to say. I was once going to say that if his lady, the princess, had been with him, she would doubtless have had the same influence upon his virtue with infinitely more advantage to him. But I considered this might give him offence, and besides, such things might have been dangerous to the circumstance I stood in. So it passed off. But I must confess, I saw that he was quite another man as to women than I understood he had always been before. But it was a particular satisfaction to me that I was thereby convinced that what he said was true and that he was, as I may say, all my own. I was with child again in this journey, and lay in at Venice, but was not so happy as before. I brought him another son, and a very fine boy it was, but it lived not above two months, nor after the first touches of affection, which are usual, I believe, to all mothers, were over, as I sorry the child did not live. The necessary difficulties attending it in our travelling being considered. After these several perambulations, my lord told me his business began to close, and we would think of returning to France, which I was very glad of, but principally on account of my treasure I had there, which, as you have heard, was very considerable. It is true I had letters very frequently from my maid Amy with accounts that everything was very safe, and that was very much to my satisfaction. However, as to the prince's negotiations were at an end, he was obliged to return. I was very glad to go. So we returned from Venice to Turin, and in the way I saw the famous city of Milan. From Turin we went over the mountains again, as before and our coaches met us at Pont-Avoisin, between Chambry and Lyon, and so by easy journeys we arrived safely at Paris, having been absent two years, wanting about eleven days as above. I found the little family we left just as we left them, 
cried for joy when she saw me, and I almost did the same. The prince took his leave of me the night before, for as he told me he knew he should be met upon the road by several persons of quality, and perhaps by the princess herself. So we lay at two different inns that night, lest some should come quite to the place, as indeed it happened. After this I saw him not for above twenty days, being taken up in his family and also with business. But he sent me his gentleman to tell me the reason of it, and bid me not to be uneasy, and that satisfied me effectually. In all this affluence of my good fortune, I did not forget that I had been rich and poor once already, alternately, and that I ought to know that the circumstances I was now in were not to be expected to last always, that I had one child and expected another, and if I had bred often it would something impair me in the great article that supported my interest, I mean what he called beauty, that as that declined I might expect the fire would abate, and the warmth with which I was now caressed, would cool, and in time, like the other mistresses of great men, I might be dropped again, and that if therefore it was my business to take care that I should fall as softly as I could. I say I did not forget, therefore, to make as good provision for myself as if I had nothing to have subsisted on but what I now gained, whereas I had no less than ten thousand pounds, as I said above which I had amassed, or secured, rather, out of the ruins of my faithful friend the jeweller, and which he, little thinking of what was so near him when he went out, told me, though in a kind of jest, was all my own, if he was knocked on the head, and which, upon the title, I took care to preserve. My greatest difficulty now was how to secure my wealth, and to keep what I had got. I had greatly added to this wealth by the generous bounty of the prince, the more by the private retired mode of living, which he rather desired for privacy than parsimony, for he supplied me for a more magnificent way of life than I desired, if it had been proper. I shall cut short the history of this prosperous wickedness with telling you I brought him a third son, within little more than eleven months after our return from Italy. But now I lived a little more openly, and went by a particular name which he gave me abroad, but which I must admit, vis-à-vis the countess, and had coaches and servants suitable to the quality he had given me the appearance of, and which is more than usually happens in such cases. This held eight years from the beginning, during which time, as I had been very faithful to him, so I must say as above that I believe he was so separated to me, that whereas he usually had two or three women, which he kept privately, he had not in all that time meddled with any of them. That I had so perfectly engrossed him, that he dropped them all. Not perhaps that he saved much by it, for I was a very chargeable mistress to him, that I must acknowledge, but it was all owing to his particular affection to me, not to my extravagance, for, as I said, he never gave me leave to ask him for anything, but poured in his favours and presents faster than I expected, and so fast as I could not have the assurance to make the least mention of desiring more. 
nor do I think this of my own guess, I mean about his constancy to me, and his quitting all other women, but the old Haridan, as I may call her, whom he made the guide of our travelling, and who was a strange old creature, told me a thousand stories of his gallantry, as she called it, and how, as he had no less than three mistresses at one time, and, as I found all of her procuring, he had of a sudden dropped them all, that he was entirely lost to both her and them, that they did believe he had fallen into some new hands, but she could never hear who or where till he sent for her to go this journey, and then the old hag complimented me upon his choice, and she did not wonder I had so engrossed him, so much beauty, etc., and there she stopped. Upon the whole, I found by her what was, you may be sure, to my particular satisfaction, vis-à-vis that, as above, I had him all my own. But the highest tide has its ebb, and in all things of this kind there is a reflex which sometimes, also, is more impetuously violent than the first aggression. My prince was a man of a vast fortune, though no sovereign therefore there was no probability that the expense of keeping a mistress could be injurious to him as to his estate. He had always several employments, both out of France as well as in it. Was above, I say, he was not a subject of France, though he lived in that court. He had a princess, a wife with whom he had lived several years, and a woman, so the voice of fame reported, the most valuable of her sex, of birth equal to him, if not superior, and of fortune proportionable, but in beauty, wit, and a thousand good qualities superior, not to most women, but even to all her sex, and as to her virtue, the character which was justly her due, was that of not only the best of princesses, but even the best of women. They lived in the utmost harmony, as with such a princess it was impossible to be otherwise. But yet the princess was not insensible that her lord had his foibles, that he did make some excursions, and particularly that he had one favourite mistress, which sometimes engrossed him more than she, the princess, could wish, or be easily satisfied with. However, she was so good, so generous, so truly kind a wife, that she never gave him any uneasiness on this account, except so much as must arise from his sense of her bearing the affront of it with such patience, and such a profound respect for him as was in itself enough to have reformed him, and did sometimes shock his generous mind, so as to keep him at home, as I may call it, a great while together, and it was not long before I had not only perceived it by his absence, but really got a knowledge of the reason of it, and once or twice he even acknowledged it to me. It was a point that lay not in me to manage. I made a kind of motion once or twice to him to leave me, and to keep himself to her, 
as he ought by the laws and rights of matrimony to do, and argued the generosity of the princess to him, to persuade him. But I was a hypocrite, for had I prevailed with him really to be honest, I had lost him, which I could not bear the thought of, and he might easily see I was not in earnest. One time in particular, when I took upon me to talk at this rate, I found when I argued so much for the virtue and honour, the birth, and above all the generous usage he found in the person of the princess with respect to his private amours, and how it should prevail upon him, etc., I found it began to affect him. And he returned, And do you indeed persuade me to leave you? Would you have me think you sincere? I looked up in his face, smiling. Not any other favourite, my lord, says I. That would break my heart. But for madame, the princess, said I. And then I could say no more. Tears followed, and I sat silent a while. Well, said he, if ever I do leave you, it shall be on the virtuous account. It shall be for the princess. I assure you it shall be for no other woman. That's enough, my lord, said I. There I ought to submit. And while I am assured it shall be for no other mistress, I promise, your highness, I will not repine, or that if I do, it shall be a silent grief. It shall not interrupt your felicity. All this while I said I knew not what, and said what I was no more able to do than he was able to leave me, which at that time he owned he could not do, no, not for the princess herself. But another turn of affairs determined this matter. The princess was taken very ill, and in the opinion of all her physicians, very dangerously so. In her sickness she desired to speak with her lord, and to take her leave of him. At this grievous parting she said so many passionate kind things to him, lamented that she had left him no children, she had had three, but they were dead, hinted to him that it was one of the chief things which gave her satisfaction in death as to this world, that she should leave him room to have heirs to his family by some princess that should supply her place with all humility, but with a Christian earnestness, recommended to him to do justice to such a princess, whoever it should be, from whom, to be sure, he would expect justice, that is to say, to keep to her singly according to the solemnest part of the marriage covenant, humbly asked his highness's pardon if she had any way offended him, and appealing to heaven before Hugh's tribunal she was to appear, that she had never violated her honour or her duty to him, and praying to Jesus and the blessed Virgin for his highness, and thus with the most moving and most passionate expressions of her affection to him, took her last leave of him, and died the next day. This discourse from a princess 
so valuable in herself, and so dear to him, and the loss of her following so immediately after made such deep impressions on him, that he looked back with a detestation upon the former part of his life, grew melancholy and reserved. changed his society and much of the general conduct of his life, resolved on a life regulated most strictly by the rules of virtue and piety, and in a word was quite another man. The first part of his reformation was a storm upon me, for about ten days after the princess's funeral he sent a message to me by his gentleman, intimating, though in very civil terms, and with a short preamble or introduction, that he desired I would not take it ill, that he was obliged to let me know that he could see me no more. His gentleman told me a long story of the new regulation of life his lord had taken up, that he had been so afflicted for the loss of his princess that he thought it would either shorten his life he would retire into some religious house to end his days in solitude. I need not direct anybody to suppose how I received this news. I was indeed exceedingly surprised at it, and had much ado to support myself when the first part of it was delivered, though the gentleman delivered his errand with great respect, and with all the regards to me that he was able with a great deal of ceremony, always telling me how much he was concerned to bring me such a message. But when I heard the particulars of the story at large, and especially that of the lady's discourse to the prince a little before her death, I was fully satisfied. I knew very well he had done nothing but what any man must do, that he had a true sense upon him of the justice of the princess's discourse to him and of the necessity there was of his altering his course of life, if he intended to be either a Christian or an honest man. I say when I heard this I was perfectly easy, and I confess it was a circumstance that it might be reasonably expected should have wrought something also upon me, I, that had so much to reflect upon more than the prince, that had now no more temptation or poverty or of the powerful motive which Amy used with me, namely, comply and live, deny and starve. I say, I that had no poverty to introduce vice, but was grown not only well supplied, but rich, and not only rich, but very rich, in a word richer than I knew how to think of, for the truth of it was that thinking of it sometimes almost distracted me, for want of knowing how to dispose of it, and for fear of losing it again, by some cheat or trick, not knowing anybody that I could commit the trust of it to. Besides, I should add at the close of this affair, that the prince did not, as I may say, turn me off rudely with disgust, but with all the decency and goodness peculiar to himself, and that could consist with a man reformed 
struck with the sense of his having abused so good a lady as his late princess had been. Nor did he send me away empty, but did everything like himself, and in particular ordered his gentleman to pay the rent of the house and all of the expense of his two sons, and to tell me how they were taken care of and where, and also that I might at all times inspect the usage they had, and if I disliked anything it should be rectified, and having thus finished everything, retired into Lorraine, somewhere that way where he had an estate, and I never heard of him more, I mean not as his mistress. End of section 13